This is an emergency broadcast. Do you work in a large office building? If so, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has an emergency warning for you. Due to a new physical property of the universe recently discovered by NIST, a regular office fire can cause the complete symmetrical collapse of your office building. Until now, it was thought that a complete symmetrical building collapse could only be done by skilled demolition experts drawing on years of experience and taking weeks if not months of careful precautions to set up blast charges in just the right areas of a building to bring it down. The previously neglected physical property of thermal expansion can in fact cause the complete progressive collapse of a tall office building at almost free-fall gravitational speed. Sham Sunder, respected NIST scientist, explains. Anyone who has run a tight jar lid under hot water to help loosen it up knows that metal expands when it gets hot. For World Trade Center 7, thermal expansion was a critical factor. What does this all mean for you? Well, for one, wait for the government to admit that all building codes and fire regulations hitherto have in fact been deeply flawed and that they will all now be revised to take into account this new physical property of the universe. Secondly, Look for fire insurance premiums to skyrocket as insurance companies realize for the first time that a small, ordinary office fire could result in the complete destruction of the property. Thirdly, look for the end of the controlled demolitions industry as we know it. Now that it is widespread knowledge that buildings can be brought down in a progressive collapse symmetrically into its own footprint at near freefall gravitational speed without the need for spending millions of dollars on expensive controlled demolitions companies, look for building owners to simply start a small office fire and wait a few hours for the building to completely collapse into itself at near freefall gravitational speed. For those of you who are interested in this complete revision of our understanding of fire sciences and building construction, please do not visit the sites ae911truth.org, stj911.com, 911blogger, or especially the Corbett Report, to find out more information about this phenomenon. You have been warned. Brought to you by the Friends of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Hey guys, do you like to laugh? Well, boy, have you come to the wrong place. Yes, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is another edition of Solutions Watch, and as you can already see from the title of this episode and the uh, interesting introduction, this is... Laughing at Tyrants edition of Solutions Watch. And yes, although this is ostensibly about comedy and humor, uh, well, obviously Solutions Watch, we're examining and dissecting and talking about these things 
in a somewhat serious manner, so you'll forgive me that uh, today's episode may not be the laugh riot that you might expect from the uh, the title and the subject matter, but I will attempt to throw in some of the comedy that we're talking about today. Um, at any rate, uh, hey guys, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. This is Solutions Watch. Today we are talking about laughing at tyrants, and what you have just watched was, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that was the first full-on solely comedy video in the Corbett Report archive. That was from August of 2008. It's called Emergency Warning for Office Workers. And it was released in the wake of the release of NIST's final report on the WTC7 collapse, in which Cheyenne Sunder of NIST talked about how, oh, it was thermal expansion, which was, of course, not literally a newly discovered property of the universe. I did say that in that video for comedic effect, but... As far as I know, the first and only time it uh, has been proffered for the explanation for the complete symmetrical freefall gravitational acceleration collapse of a 47-story skyscraper, uh, a verdict which I thought was so ridiculous as to be self-parodying. And so I thought, well, why don't I make, why don't I just make, instead of taking this very seriously and dissecting it from an engineering point of view, why not just expose it for the stupidity that it is with a bit of humor? And... Although, looking back, I don't think that's the funniest video I've ever done. At any rate, it was an early attempt at incorporating humor as a way of getting people to see the stupidity of some of the obvious propaganda that we're forced to accept on a daily basis, or would be forced to accept if we were simply to listen to the establishment mouthpieces. And I think that is important. That is really what I am here talking about today, the idea of using humor as a way of injecting truth into the conversation. This is, of course, not a new idea, either to you or to anyone else out there. Uh, and of course, this is not an idea that is original to me, but you will remember that I have tackled this several times in the archives quite explicitly, not only through the comedy videos that I do do from time to time, but also through more serious e explorations of the idea of comedy as a, a weapon of truth, as it were. For example, back in the archives, episode 236 of the Corbett Report podcast on peeling the onion, or episode 306 on solutions, laughing at tyrants, where you will recall, I in fact not only had a uh, podcast episode about it, I even used to sell a DVD, uh, the, a collection of some of, the, some of the comedy videos from the Corbett Report archives, and... Man, what a rarity this is these days. I bet you this will fetch dozens of yen on the eBay markets these days. But anyway, yeah, the idea is that humor can be used as a way to disarm people's cognitive defenses and barriers that they put up around these types of subjects, and that it can be used at, at, really as a way of undermining illegitimate authority, the tyrants and dictators who presume to rule over us and be these overarching, world-bestriding behemoths. Nothing can topple me. Hey, wait, don't laugh at me. Oh, no. Um, so, uh, I, I can speak to the power of this idea quite personally because I have had the occasion to encounter it in my own work. As you know, I have, I do from time to time, I do do comedic videos, and it is interesting to note, here's a little tidbit from the Better Way conference that I was at earlier this year, or earlier this month, uh, I, I, there were two types of people that I encountered and talked with and, and chatted with at the conference. There were the people who knew about me, some people who were there specifically to see me, so others who definitely knew about me and my work and um, had a lot to say about it, a lot of flattering things, very humbling experience. But then there were, of course, there were a lot of people there that were a significant number of people who 
yeah, I've heard your name. I kind of know you. But they were there for other some of the dozens of other people who were speaking at the conference. All right, fair enough. But it was interesting to note, among the people who kind of, yeah, I think I've heard of you before, the one piece that pretty much everyone knew and that time after time people would independently bring up to me is your 9-11 in five minutes video. That was so funny. I remember sending that around to all my friends. Uh, inevitably, if there's one thing that people know from the Corbett Report archives, it is the 9-11 in 5 minutes video, which is actually called 9-11 a conspiracy theory. 9-11 in 5 minutes is what it was reposted as many times on the internet. Anyway, uh, yeah, that video uh, is inevitably the one thing. If people know one thing from the Corbett Report archives, it is that video, which is, that's hilarious to me actually, because of all the things that I've done, all the time that I've spent making all of these documentaries and serious videos and what have you, it is the video that I made literally sitting there in my pajamas on Sunday, September 11th, 2011, the 10th anniversary. And I thought, you know what, for the 10th anniversary, I'm going to make a little inside joke for the 9-11 truth movement. Just a thing to say, hey guys, isn't this, isn't this funny? Isn't this crazy? And I expected it would get some traction in 9-11 Blogger and the various 9-11 related sites that were popping at the time. But I thought no one outside of the 9-11 truth community would even understand, would ever see this, would even understand it if they did come across it. Like, how would this resonate with anyone? And then it goes on to become the most popular thing that I've ever done. Millions and millions of views on my YouTube channel before it got deleted and millions more on the various channels it was posted to and Facebook and Twitter. And I've even had friends in Japan in real life coming up to me and saying, you know, I got this thing on Facebook. It sounds like your voice. Is that you? (laughs) Yeah, that was me. (laughs) But I'm not on Facebook. I don't know if you've heard. So, yes, there is a definite power to using truth as a way of getting information out to others. There are many, many, many people who saw and resonated, for example, with that 9-11 video precisely because it was in the form of a comedic piece that had comedic beats and and obvious punchlines, but there was enough in there that I think was interesting to people that they wanted to know a little bit more. I, I, I heard that little reference there, but I don't know what that was about. So I had a transcript and all the hyperlinks, and you can go and check each one and find out more information about that. So it can be an effective way of getting people interested in the truth. It can also be an effective way of speaking truth to power, which is certainly something that I think, I imagine, resonates with a lot of the Corporate Report audience and people who are out there. So, um, as I say, this is not some unique, original insight to me. Many people have made it before, and in very learned and scholarly ways, for example, N.S. Lyons, The Upheaval on uh, Substack, had a piece from December 2021 on humor and humanity, in which he talked about how he wants to uh, start a series Uh, where he goes beyond his admittedly rather dour analysis of our general global upheaval and offer up some potentially more positive thoughts on living through turbulent and dehumanizing times. And I want to begin a series to that end with a dead serious exhortation to embrace humor. By this I mean recognizing humor as not only a form of amusement or distraction, but as a quality that's absolutely vital including to the conservation of sanity, hope, and indeed humanity itself. In fact, I'll make a further proposition that humor and the appreciation, vibrancy, and toleration of its expression is perhaps the surest indicator of a healthy society and civilization. And whatever time or place you're living in the world, the suppression of the jokesters is necessarily a sure sign that something has gone terribly wrong. 
This leads to a corollary to head back toward a better place, individually or collectively, try humor. And there's much more to be said on that matter, matter, as you can read here. Of course, the link will be in the show notes if you're interested. Other people have talked about this. For example, at intellectualtakeout.org, there was Annie Holmquist who wrote uh, an article last year on laughter, the bane of tyrants, in which she points to a Politico article from last year. Liberals should be worried about the worried about the conservative comedy scene. Mm, make America great again. Mm, let's think about that one. Huh? And uh, she's pointing out in this article, they talk to the the crack reporter at Politico talks to a couple of professors, Matt Sinkowitz and Nick Marks, literally Marks, um, about h- how the shift, the cultural shift has happened. Of course, we've known for decades, a long time, since stand-up comedy was televised and and uh, achieved success on uh, in, in the media. It's always been associated with people on the left side of the spectrum, left liberal takes on the news. But now, these days, it seems like it's flipping. And as Annie Holmquist talks about, this lack of humor from the the left these days, seems to stem from cancel culture and a fear of being offensive in even the most minute ways. Instead of laughing at something funny, liberals engage in virtue signaling, telling people that there is a moral problem or maybe a political problem with finding something funny, Sinkowitz says. When liberals do this, however, they are ceding ideological territory in the culture wars to the right. The rights. The right. Marx says, noting that comedy is a binding agent that unifies people, Furthermore, humor has a power to attract younger audiences, for, as Sinkowitz explains, if it is perceived that you are going to have more fun and be less subject to scrutiny about laughing at the correct things on the right than on the left, well, which party would you want to attend if you're not deeply ideological? Again, there's more to say about this and the, the kind of cultural shift that's happening, but I would place this, as I usually do, beyond the, the phony baloney ginned up left-right spectrum, which is the entirety of the political universe, according to the people who are trying to shape your thinking and your way of looking at the world and say, no, this is about the the more fundamental axis of the political paradigm, the authoritarian libertarian axis, in which it is uh, it isn't about left versus right. And as we've seen, the left and the right can switch sides and which one is funny and which one is not funny. No, it's about establishment and counter-establishment. Which one is for the prevailing narrative and which one is poking holes and making fun of the prevailing narrative? Because you can't make fun of the prevailing narrative if you're part of the prevailing narrative. Case in point, remember back in the day when everyone thought Daily Show and Colbert Report was very funny, right? When it was making fun of that stupid, those stupid neocon, the bumbling neocons in power. But then, you know, the Obama gets elected and suddenly it's it's not quite the laugh riot that it used to be. Hmm, I wonder what, wonder what happened. What changed there? What what calculation changed? Oh, I see. They're team players, and their team got into power, so it's not as fun to make fun of power when your team is in power, right? Which I think goes some ways towards explaining the, the political shift that can happen with regards to this. But as I say, it's about establishment versus counter-establishment, and it goes even deeper. It really goes to the heart of the matter when you think of it this way. Uh, here's a quote you weren't expecting from the Corbett Report today. Dean Kuntz famed suspense thriller writer Dean Kuntz, who evidently in Mr. Murder, I haven't read it myself, but apparently he writes the line, laugh at tyrants and the tragedy they inflict. Such men welcome our tears as evidence of subservience, but our laughter condemns them to ignominy. 
Well, I agree. <laughs> Dean Kuntz, uh, yeah, well, well said. I agree. I think that is true. Laughing at tyrants and the tragedy they inflict is truly one of the strongest weapons that we have against them. They cannot stand laughter. They cannot stand being made fun of precisely because... If you really want the intellectual uh, explanation of this, you can turn to Interview 1563 from the Corporate Report Archives, where I talked to Keith Knight about the politics of obedience by Etienne de Le Boetie, and how tyrants can only function as tyrants with the willful participation of everyone they are supposedly tyrannizing. And when people stop obeying the tyrants, that is when the tyrant ceases to function as a tyrant, because you can issue edicts all you want, but if people aren't going to follow them, then you're not really a tyrant or a dictator. And that's precisely the type of power that humor has to undermine the supposed authority and legitimacy of authority of those in positions of power. This is a point that has, like so many other points, been understood, studied, and weaponized by the powers that shouldn't be for far longer than most of us have been thinking along these lines, as evidenced by things like this. Here's a uh, Democracy Lab article, um, uh, foreignpolicy.com, uh, from 2013, Why Dictators Don't Like Jokes, which notes that pro-democracy activists around the world are discovering that humor is one of the most powerful weapons in the fight against authoritarianism. And here, foreignpolicy.com uh, tells us that 15 years ago, when Serbia's nonviolent pro-democracy movement, Otpor, was just a tiny group of 20 students with $50, honest guys, we decided to play a prank. We, because of course this is written by a couple of the members of Otpor, uh, we took an oil barrel, taped a picture of Serbian dictator Slobodan Milosevic to it, and set it up in the middle of Belgrade's largest shopping district. Next to it, we placed a baseball bat. Then we went for coffee, sat down, and watched the fun unfold. Before long, dozens of shoppers lined the street, each waiting for a chance to take a swing at Milosevic, the man so many despised, but whom most were too afraid to criticize. About 30 minutes in, the police arrived. That's when we held our breath, waiting for what would happen next. What would the Milosevic's police do? They couldn't arrest shoppers on what grounds? And they couldn't arrest the culprits since we were nowhere to be seen. So what did Milosevic's police do? The only thing they could, they arrested the barrel. The image of the two policemen dragging the barrel to their police car was the best photo shoot in Serbia for months. Milosevic and his cronies became the laughing stock of the nation and Otpor became a household name. And uh, although uh, this was apparently the the best photo shoot in Serbia for months. They don't provide a photo of that. The only photo they have is this incredibly low-resolution, old-style photo of the oil barrel with literally just a, a target with Milosevic's face on it, and there's the, there's the bat. It's not even a baseball bat. So there you go. And apparently this attracted dozens of shoppers, right? Or, I don't know, looks like a staged photo of a few people, and there's no photo of the police dragging away the barrel. Whatever. Anyway, the point stands, and they do talk about this in much more detail in this article in a number of different contexts, including, of course, the uh, the Arab Spring and this hilarious installing freedom joke, cannot installing freedom, uh, please remove Mubarak and try again, ha ha ha. What a funny internet meme from a decade ago about the Arab Spring and all of that and what happened there. So, as I say, this is a, a phenomenon that has been studied talked about, analyzed, and utilized by the powers that shouldn't be in the interests of their geopolitical agenda. When it's a foreign dictator, 
One of those ones that are on the U.S. State Department crosshair target list. Like, we got to get this guy. Then, yes, of course, these activists with $50, uh, honest, that's all Otpour ever was. Search Otpour and CorporateReport.com if you want more information on that story. But anyway, uh, what could we do? Well, oh, I know, we'll set up this this oil barrel and it'll be this, this great joke. Um, so the, the idea stands and it, it can be quite effective. And I, I must admit it, it is funny sometimes to see some of the officially establishment, U.S. establishment approved funny, ma- making fun of various dictators around the world. Of course, everyone knows about Xi Jinping, Winnie the Pooh, and the controversy and Winnie the Pooh being banned from Chinese internet platforms and social media and stuff because it is used as a way of uh, making fun of Xi Jinping. The resemblance, I suppose, there is a resemblance there. Um, I-, I must admit, I laughed Hardly. Remember last October at the Chinese Party Congress where they had that bizarre moment where Hu Jintao was let out. Everyone's silent and just looking ahead and Hu Jintao is literally let out and is trying to speak to uh, Chi and the others that, that are sitting there. Weird, bizarre, unsettling moment. Anyway, I must admit when I saw the Winnie the Pooh version of that moment, <laughs> I think they did honestly did a good job of capturing that... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's about right. It is. I suppose Hugh Jintao really is Eeyore in this picture. Anyway, um, it, it does line up. It, it is funny. And it is one of those things that does make... It actually does stick in my brain. I remember this moment as the Winnie the Pooh <laughs> version <laughs> at this point. Um, so it can be incredibly effective. Of course it can. But that's exactly why I think the powers that shouldn't be freak out so much when this weapon is used against th- our... Our establishment dictators. No, no, no. You don't use this against us. That's a that's a thought crime. It's a hate crime. It's 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 bullying. It's internet abuse. It's whatever we call it. We're going to have to crack down on it. And if you don't believe me, well, let's let's look at a little bit of this propaganda together, shall we? This is just so ridiculous as to be hilarious. But this is apparently the Washington Post decided to make a little explainer for those not in the know on the Let's Go Brandon chant as to not only what Let's Go Brandon is and where it came from, but why it is so dangerous. So let's see what Democracy Dies in Darkness has to say about Let's Go Brandon. Oh my gosh, it's such an unbelievable moment. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the the crowd, Let's Go Brandon. While interviewing NASCAR driver Brandon Brown, this NBC sports reporter misheard chants coming from the crowd and unwittingly created a new right-wing slogan. In this case, they very clearly were screaming, Joe Biden. Let's go, Brandon took off on social media. For some, the phrase came to embody an out-of-touch mainstream media that was either clueless or trying to defend President Biden. It's not a slur, folks, nor is it offensive, nor is it just about Joe Biden. The language disguises a crude expletive, seen by many on the right as a clever way to insult Biden and his administration. That's just how humans communicate. This has become really popular in Trump's yeah. cheek, like, oh, it's a dog whistle. They might- That's just how humans communicate. Anyway, uh, go watch this for the rest of this for yourself if you're so inclined. But you get the idea. The the, the piano music in the background, the sad strains there. Oh, oh, this is so worrying. And oh, no, what's... I hope Washington Post can tell me what to do about this vile slur of let's go, Brandon. Oh, this is so terrible. Uh, 
It's ridiculous. This is exactly the stupidest way to respond to humor that's going around uh, because it, again, this is, this is funny. This is, I don't know if Washington Post understands this, but this reaction to that type of, uh, to that specifically to people making fun of a would-be dictator to make this, oh my God, oh, let's take this very seriously. Oh, these domestic extremists are getting out of hand with this violent rhetoric. Everyone sees how stupid and laughable this is, right? So yes, humor can be an incredibly effective tool because they don't really have much of a defense against it. If something is funny, it is funny and people will laugh at it. You can't intellectualize it away. Speaking of intellectualizing it away, we, <laughs> this is supposedly a, uh, about comedy and humor, and we haven't had a lot of humor. So sorry for all of this exposition, but I think it needs to be said. We need to understand what is happening, why it is happening, why it is effective. But having said all of that, let's have a little bit of humor, shall we? Yesterday, my daughter's birthday was yesterday. Nice job, snail man. A hole. Hey there, little Sally. Beautiful day today, huh? Yay! Amazon.com stepped into the future today with the launch of their first ever door-to-door -door drone delivery service. Could this be the end of your neighborhood mailman? watching you, Mel. Who are you? I'm an independent bookstore owner. Or at least I used to be. Together, we are publishers, grocers, cobblers. We're the anti-drone coalition against unmanned parcel delivery, otherwise known as Ad Africa. We've chosen you, Mel. What do I have to do? Eliminate the drones. We see that fear doesn't control you, but you control fear. Take out every drone in your path. They're everywhere. We will stand up against them strong, an army of one. I'm a person. I'm a human being. I'm sorry, are you talking to me? I don't see anyone else in No, here. it's a soliloquy. Twinkle, twinkle, little drone. Now, as I imagine most of the people in this particular audience already knows, that was, of course, the Joy Camp. Uh, Joy Camp, of course, being a comedy, originally a comedy duo between Benny Wills and Kevin Kostelnik that then expanded with multiple 
uh, collaborators over the years. And I am sure, as I say, if you're in the Corporate Report audience, you know about Joy Camp and their work and have seen many of their funny videos along the lines of conspiratorial out there topics over the years. Uh, of course, as you will also know, the Joy Camp crew is no longer in the physically located in the same place and do not have the opportunity to work together very much. But you will also know, of course, that Benny Wills definitely spends uh, time in the independent media space, and you will remember him from previous editions of Solutions Watch and other interviews that I've had with him. Uh, for example, where we were talking about his course Parhesia on the Art of Communication. And so you will know, I, I'm sure, again, many of these details. And you might know, and you might remember, that several years ago now, uh, they did release, Joy Camp did release that sketch on their, on their channel as a teaser for a potential upcoming Joy Camp TV series. And then they released the pilot episode of that TV series that they did create and did shop around uh, in, in LA, trying to get it sold uh, to some network or other, or some syndication deal. Uh, as you might also at least be able to tell, of course, that did not quite happen. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was quite the story. And as you may or may not know, they released... Uh, Joy Camp released a 15-16 minute version of that pilot episode that they created on their channel back in 2016. And as you may or may not know, Benny Wills released the full, I think, 18 minute uh, version, uh, the director's cut, the uncut version of that uh, pilot episode of the Joy Camp TV series on his channel, his YouTube and Odyssey channel, um, earlier this year. So that will all be linked up for your viewing pleasure. I'm not going to play the entire uh, pilot here. Of course not. Uh, that is for you to go and discover and enjoy for yourself. It is a professionally produced, ready-for-TV series that was going to be produced. Uh, they did produce that that pilot episode, and it is there for your viewing pleasure. So please follow the, the link from the show notes to go check it out. But I did have the chance to sit down and talk to Benny Wills about Joy Camp, how it came together, how this TV series, the, how the idea came together, how it was shopped around, what happened to it, and where things stand today, and what Benny is looking to do in the future. So without further ado, Benny Wills explains a little bit about Joy Camp and how it came together. Joy Camp came together by accident, really, because my friends and I were, especially, I say Kevin, my friend and I, Kevin, were figuring out how to contribute to what at that time we were calling the truth movement. And we didn't know how to do it. We didn't know what we could do to help. We didn't want to be just bystanders, you know, watching the story unfold. And a friend of ours and his friend who were living in San Francisco made a little parody commercial of a Calvin Klein cologne ad, and they called it Conspiracy Cologne. And they sent it to us. And Kevin and I thought, oh, we should make one of our own and send it back. And so we put our heads together. We, could, we came up with this video called Conspiracy Theorist PSA, which ended up being our first video. But we made it and we watched it back. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is like pretty good. This could actually be really good. What if we threw our hat into the ring and attempted to be the comic relief in the truth movement? Because there was a need, there was a... Uh, you know, it was a pretty serious environment. So we thought, what if we try to lighten it up a bit and be the comic relief? And so we leaned in, into it fully. We held on to that video and decided to film five more and then launched the channel with six videos in the can. And then 
it took off. And then the rest is history. So, I mean, I guess, as you say, this is pretty organic. This wasn't some sort of master plan. It just kind of came together and felt right. And when you saw it, you knew you had something. But uh, tell us about that idea of the moment when you realized that the comedy was kind of your way into this greater movement that was going on. Well, it all made sense once we made the video. Everything fell into place. And it was like so obvious. We couldn't believe we hadn't thought of it before. Because so Kevin and I, for years always had each other to bounce ideas off of. And we were always able to arrive at a place of laughter, no matter how serious the topic. So no matter how deep down the rabbit hole we were going, we were always able to essentially find our way back out by laughing. And because the two of us had been putting all of our efforts into becoming professional writers, editors, actors, we had been harnessing these skills while we were, you know, quote unquote, waking up. And then it all just coalesced all at once. And it was like, oh, of course, this is the thing. So it was the perfect coalescence and we stumbled our way into it. So uh, as I'm sure my audience knows, anyway, I'll be providing links so people can check it out if they've never seen Joy Camp, but I would find that surprising. Yeah. But if they haven't, they would, they've got quite a wild ride, quite a lot of videos um, and hilarious, really, truly funny videos. And that Thanks. started to be the snowball rolling downhill. There was some momentum behind it. And so you guys decided to do a TV pilot? We didn't. We decided to after there was interest from a producer. I mean, we didn't seek that, seek that route. So a producer found our channel and loved it and thought it could go mainstream. Because at that time, you know, conspiracy wasn't as... Uh, hated and censored it was maybe scoffed at but it wasn't it wasn't this we weren't met with the same kind of anger that you're met with now or in the last couple of years so and also at that time mr robot was a really popular show so what year are we talking about conspiracy theorists uh this is 2014 15 that area i think 14 is when we met the producer so he wanted to go all in he's like let's make a pilot let's make a sketch show based on joy camp and so uh we thought why not? You know, if we could, the more people we reach, the better. And so we put everything into it. We spent about a year planning it, writing it, whittling down the sketches, making sure we had a really good product. And then we figured out, you know, where to do it, how to do it, how to, how much money to put into it. And we filmed it all and edited it all. And it, the whole process took about a year and a half. And then we, uh, we got signed by William Morris Agency, which is the biggest talent agency in the world, which is crazy. Um, and yeah, we shopped it all over town. And that's how it came to be. And then you guys got the deal. You, you, you hit at Comedy Central. You became the biggest. Oh, wait. Uh, I don't remember oh, that wait. part of the story. Wait, what happened? Well, we... Everybody liked it. It was It was frustrating for me because... It was obviously a quality product. And we even went into some of these meetings and you could tell that the people who were there to meet with us were just taking another meeting. Like they, they came in without any enthusiasm. But by the time they were done watching it, they their eyes were lit up like they liked it. But the consensus was they didn't know what to do with it. They're like, what do we do with this? And who is the audience? Like, how do we market it? They were thinking like business and they just didn't know how to what to do with it. They liked the talent that was displayed. So they wanted, everyone wanted us to come back with another idea. 
And I was stubborn. And I was like, nope, this is the thing. I don't want to come back. And I've actually thought about that moment a lot in retrospect. I think I made the right decision ultimately because my life is great. But I didn't want to compromise. I wanted it to be joy camp. I wanted joy camp to be the thing. And then it wasn't. But it wasn't because people didn't like it. People actually universally thought it was great. And amazingly enough, you know, because I remember you guys released the, the drone sketch a number of years yeah. ago as kind of like a teaser. But uh, mm-hmm. that was that was it. And then a few months ago, you posted the whole thing up. Well, we posted the whole thing on our channel. Uh, I don't remember what, like, how long after we had taken the last meeting, but we did it without much fanfare because we were so over it at that point. So we we posted it like we posted any other video without like hyping it at all, without really telling anything. But we just kind of wanted to move on. So our enthusiasm level was gone, and we just put it out there for our audience, and it got a you know a nice reception, and it got a decent amount of views. But we didn't push it. We didn't like do anything with it because it also sort of signified the end of Joy Camp. That was sort of like the pinnacle of the whole experience. And we all started moving on into our separate our separate journeys at that point. So then I decided what happened was I found the longer version on my hard drive. You know, we we had an 18 minute version, I think, and we whittled it down to about. 12 minutes for our channel. And I found, I think a 16 minute version or something on my hard drive. And I was like, man, this is really good. We only whittled it down so much so that we could like get through those meetings. But some of the pacing was lost. Some of the jokes didn't land quite as well because we didn't have the the full thing. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put it on my channel because it deserves to be seen. And that's what happened. So I, I dug it up and then I posted it. And again, the reception from the audience was great. And now everyone wants to, wants me to produce this joy camp pilot, but uh, it'd be pretty hard to do at this point. <laughs> yeah, things have moved on and moved on in so many different ways, not just in your personal life, but in the greater context of, you know, the world at large. And as you say, the climate today is so much different than it was at the time you the were climate producing Climate has changed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, real climate sure. change, right? Um, yeah, oh, speak to that, speak to that. Because honestly, I think, man, if these stupid boneheaded TV execs had realized at that time that would have been the early part of the wave of you know mainstream conspiracy culture you guys would i i genuinely think there would have been a big audience for that if it had been pushed i agree and perhaps we didn't push hard enough but yeah i mean the climate has shifted to the point where this kind of content gets censored mm. so i mean to, yeah. to think that we ha- we could have had any shelf life on mainstream television i just it's probably a blessing that it didn't happen because one of my concerns when we were shopping, it was, I will lose, I could potentially Mm -hmm. lose creative control over this. And then what, then what is it? What does joy camp become? Um, but it's been interesting just to watch the whole, the whole, you know, how the climate has changed from start to finish with not only joy camp, but with my journey of, you know, of, of discernment and, uh, analyzing reality and like the truth about what's really going on. Sure. I mean, now people so, were met with such just incredibly dark subjects that generally make people depressed. But the ability to find humor in that is so rare and so important, I think, for people to be able to not just give in to the, oh, my God, we're all going to die. Um, on that note, t- tell us about, yes. A, what you've learned from that experience in terms of comedy and its transformative power. And B, 
where you're going from here in your journey, because as people will know from our previous conversations, you've had the Parhesia course that you've been running for the past yes. few years, helping people to communicate this kind of information and open dialogues and express themselves and find outlets for their yeah. creativity and their thoughts. But now you're moving on from Parhesia. Yes. Okay. So what have I learned from the comedy? Well, I think it's important to keep a good sense of humor regardless. So I think that being able to laugh at the world is so healthy and it keeps you it's not only therapeutic, but it helps with your courage and your self-confidence and your ability to take all this on. You know, it's it's an intimidating world and it can be scary and can be really scary depending on how much you're looking into things. So the ability to pull yourself back and laugh is so important and so key in your life experience. Cause this is your life. Like you're just going to, you don't want to spend all your time in your life just being angry or scared. That's a waste of life. So being able to laugh is really healthy. And what I've learned is that there's always a need for that. For one, there's always a need for laughter. There's always a need for lightheartedness. There's always a need for levity. And if you are wanting to express some, express your thoughts on something that is perhaps controversial, if you can do it in a lighthearted way, in a funny way, it is disarming. People's guards do go down when you're able to make them laugh and they're willing to hear you better and, and they're able to accept new ideas better because you're not so uh, intense. You know, if you can be funny, people are will be able to hear you better. Um, and yeah, through joy camp and through doing poetry and performing at conferences and stuff. I, and then with 2020, I definitely learned that everything I'd been doing was communication. So I was with joy camp, figuring out how to communicate controversial taboo ideas in a funny way. Poetry was distilling down complicated ideas into a palatable, enjoyable experience. So I created Parhesia to help people tackle these topics that are nearly impossible to talk about with friends and loved ones who are believing and watching mainstream, you know, or just taking in mainstream opinion. Um, and what that has evolved into is more of a coaching program to help people get unstuck because what, what the rabbit hole or being too in the know about what's really going on can do is make a person complacent and and like a deer in headlights, like not knowing which way to turn because they see the evil in everything. They see the problems everywhere and they become apathetic or they become cynical. They become so black-pilled, they can't move in any direction with any sort of clarity or confidence. So I've, I'm moving from Parhesia into a coaching program for men to help them get back on track because this world needs strong men and good leadership. And so many men are so black-pilled they're just stuck. So my new program is called The Self-Reliant Way, and it's to help men become self-reliant and become powerful. Because if you think about it, the powers that be, how do you challenge the powers that be? You yourself have to become powerful. And you have to acknowledge that and bring that out. And everyone has it, but it's, it's dormant in so many people. So I'm helping people just bring that out and remind them that life is a fleeting experience and they can, they can have an impact in this world if they so choose, but they have to decide it and they have to go for it. And I have the tools to help them do so. Do you smell, do you smell that? I, I think I smell a future solutions watch brewing in the kitchen there. All right, cool. 
Yeah. Re- I'm really passionate about this. Awesome. Well, I, I, I am 100% on board with that project, and I'm very much interested in hearing more about it as it develops. But for the purposes of today's conversation, I think we'll wrap it up here. But I just have one question. We've got the, the black pill and the white pill and the red pill and the blue pill. What color is the comedy pill? You know what? I'm not even, I don't, I, I don't have an answer because I'm so sick of using pill analogies. <laughs> uh, why, why are we using pills to describe our experience anyway? <laughs> well, there, you, you have something to say about that in the funniest uh, show that almost was, which of course will be linked up in the show notes so people can There's watch. A, there is literally a pill for everything. Yeah. For the, uh, yeah, the pill commentary in there. All right. Fair enough. I accept that answer. Benny Wills, thank you as always. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Once again, that was Benny Wills, formerly of Joy Camp, perhaps potentially still of Joy Camp when they get together, but more importantly, of BennyWills.com, where you can go to check out, well, he has links and information about his various work, uh, and of course you will see the information about the last edition, the last season of Parhesia, which has just wrapped up. So uh, Parhesia is over, but as Benny talked about there uh, towards the end of that uh, conversation, he is planning a a new course, uh, coaching and teaching, uh, especially young men, on how to avoid the black pill, as it were. Or any pills, maybe. Anyway, uh, very much looking forward to hearing more about that. You can follow and inform yourselves about Benny Wills' work at BennyWills.com. But there you go. There is somebody who has used humor to carve out a space in the independent news world and uh, has very successfully done that with some very subversive, very funny... Um, takes on things. And if people, if, really, as I say, if you are a Corbett reporter and you are not familiar with Joy Camp, wow, you have, <laughs> you have a lot of material to, in the backlog there, in the, in the catalog to, uh, to catch up on. So, of course, the link to that will be in the show notes along with bennywills.com and everything else that's being mentioned today so that you can go and peruse to your heart's content. There's a lot of funny material there. But moving right along. Oh, that ain't it for today, folks. We have a lot more to discuss, including Day Job Orchestra. Day Job Orchestra. I wonder what the overlap in audience is here, but I can tell you that I recall, (laughs) this must have been 2006, 7, something like that. I recall encountering Day Job Orchestra in my travels through the internet, and I remember seeing I don't know how to explain it, so I'll just explain it. As I recall, the first video I saw was Happy in Paraguay, which has had millions and millions of views over the years, and I'm sure some people in the audience will be familiar with it. It was a series of Star Trek The Next Generation clips where the actual things that the people are speaking has been overdubbed with funny, weird, random, non-sequitur things that look like they match what the mouths are doing. I have a sheep doing roofing over at my house. Come and drop in. We'll put on Zeppelin and eat cheddar cheese. Why didn't you play with Worf's hair? Now that concept has been taken up and people will probably know about Bad Lip Reading, this YouTube channel that has made an entire thing out of that and gets a lot of attention. But Day Job Orchestra was there doing it way before then. In fact, as I recently learned, before even YouTube, before 2006, before they started posting on the internet, they were doing it with VCR dubs. So crazy. But I remember encountering this channel. And then I'm sure it was several months later, maybe a year later, I recall them having a 9-11 related, 9-11 truth related version of one of their their lip reading, lip dub comedy sketches. And I, I just... 
I thought that was such an interesting and weird, and oh, I guess these guys are clued in. Well, yes, they are. And over the years, I've come to know Mike and Pete, Mike Thorne and Pete Swan. Uh, Day Job Orchestra is, I guess, a band that has been around since the 90s, but it's also <laughs> the name of the channel that uh, Mike and Pete have created to host their video concoctions, which, again, I'm not going to try to describe them. You have to see them. So why don't we take a look at the 9-11 Trek video, which was the one that made me realize, oh, I think these guys know a thing or two. Am I supposed to believe these buildings? just fell with no explosions. <laughs> I can't believe that shit. So how does fire pulverize three buildings? It doesn't, but who cares? They got their oil pipeline through Afghanistan. That's true. Because of oil, a few of us got wiped out. America's getting crazy. Mm, Patriot Act, wiretapping, torture. Unprotected borders, undeclared wars. Abu Ghraib. Guantanamo Bay. FEMA camps. Rex 84. And what will the ignorant masses say when World War III begins? Zeke Heil, probably. Ha! Ah, you know who's really responsible for all this? Dick Cheney and those neocons. UN. Ashcroft. And the Bilderbergs want their, uh, what do you call uh, it? Uh, New World Order. Yeah, that's it. Yep, 9-11 was no freaking accident. 9-11 was an inside job. In fact, what we have is a new Reichstag with a new enemy. Terrorism. It's really fascism. Everybody should know. Yep. The wars are fabricated. Hmm. Are you ready for Iran? Iran. Kaboom. And the media is useless. We get... Fear and fiction from morons. That's on a good day. <laughs> and if you can't trust the media, where do you get real information? YouTube. Infowars. Why don't you try to read a book? Hmm. Pick up five. I realize there may be a couple of types of people in the audience right now. First, firstly, people who know or have seen that before or resonate with that video and other people who are <laughs> completely and utterly lost. What on earth is going on? <laughs> if that's the case, well, I suggest you look into Day Job Orchestra and some of their previous work <laughs> because uh, you have to contextualize this a bit. And I feel like an internet grandpa right now because back in my day, back before I had all this gray hair, I tell you, that was exciting to watch back in the day, back in 2007 when things were happening online that were not happening in the mainstream world. And you could even point to, hey, where do you go for information? YouTube. <laughs> Remember those days, folks? I almost do. Anyway, yes. Uh, again, an interesting idea that has been done in many permutations. That was maybe not a laugh riot, but some of the other stuff they've done is truly hilarious. At least I think <laughs> very funny stuff. So, I had a chance to talk to Mike and Pete recently about their work, what they do, how they do it, and where did this idea for this lip dubbing come in in the first place? Good question. It was his idea. Um, uh, Mike started back in the day with uh, two VCRs and figured out a way uh, to dub one onto the others if you were copying a tape uh, and interrupt the audio signal with the microphone. And it was a painstaking process, line by line. Um, and um, yeah, it took a lot longer. And then, you know, we discovered uh, that we could do it on personal computers. And uh, Sony Vegas, who I think was the first editor, 
um, we're still using that. Um, and uh, it became much quicker. And then Mike did Condi Rice. And I didn't know how that was going to be received. But um, when a lot of people, when we, we had a lot more people um, thumbing it up than down. And, and the reaction was was pretty cool. It was the same as when we just show it to our friends. So I thought, OK, well, maybe maybe we should upload more. And uh, and we did. <laughs> so uh, Star Trek became really popular. That is that is how I found you guys, because I remember watching Happy in Paraguay and years and years and years ago. And it was just it was it was so deeply hilarious. And I don't know why, but warp me to Halifax and my mother was hijacked by ninjas and just just the total randomness. But your brain does this weird thing where it just starts to see uh, that kind of that is what they're saying. That does look like what they're saying. I don't know. How you, uh, that's my question. How did you guys even think to do this? What was your, what was your inspiration for this? Where did you get the idea? I, I, I have remember. to say Mike is the OG on this because, um, you know, the, the lip dubbing had been done many ways uh, for a long time, but the idea of uh, making it look like what it's, uh, the, the words were actually being said and, you know, with really tight timing and really paying attention to the, the mouth movements and the expression uh, at the expense of coherence, um, that I think was something that Mike pioneered, and then I jumped on board, and uh, and we both seemed to have a knack for it. So it's such a deeply internet humor kind of idea, and you guys were obviously pioneering this what, back in two thousand six when you started uploading to YouTube. Anyway, um, yeah, it's just it's so far ahead of sort of what became internet comedy. That hats off to you guys because, as people might know, there are now other lip dubbing channels that probably are there's, more there's bad lip reading uh they started in 2010 and uh i remember someone asked uh them if they'd ever heard of day job orchestra and they said no we hadn't heard of it but uh, i i think it's conceivable that somebody could come up with the idea to do this type of dubbing independently of seeing our stuff um but uh yeah they do some good stuff but um i think i think we probably did pioneer this particular style of dubbing so it was when I saw a 9-11 trick, because I remember, as I say, I'd already seen your guys' stuff, and I thought it was hilarious. But when I saw a 9-1-1 trick, and I saw, oh, wait, I think these guys know a thing or two. So how did this <laughs> well, all we start learned, We learned from the best, you know. Uh, I remember uh, me and Mike sort of woke up, as, as people say, uh, started looking at the broader geopolitical and geoeconomic landscape uh, right around the same time, around 2006, when high-speed, you know, videos were available and, and you could watch independent documentaries and it was just a whole new world. So a lot of people, I think, woke up at that time and um, and we kind of grew up with your information. We learned with you, we learned from you, and we're still watching you. So it's a real honor to be here. So <laughs> thanks for having us. Well, Mike, uh, tell us about your experience of this. Are you, as I say, as, as Pete is saying, you were the OG at coming up with this and doing that on Actual VCR? That must have been an incredibly painstaking process, I can only imagine, because you've got to get the dub live, essentially, right? Yeah, um, I worked at this uh, uh, AV company, and I had the uh, luxury of having these VCRs, which uh, you can hook together with an edit cable. And you can they have jog shuttle dials, you could pause at the, the very frame that you want to start at, and you could start them simultaneously. So we can actually stop and you know get a few lines and then 
redo it. You know, we'll, we'll watch it and then we'll reset it and we'll do it again. So it was a long, painstaking process, but we we just did it for fun and, and laughs, really. Tell us, tell us about the feedback you have received on this over the years, because I imagine it must be. Uh, see, for people who are finding the Corbett Report, generally it's because they are looking for sort of independent media kind of stuff, and they're looking for something along the lines of what I'm doing. But you are merging pop culture and Star Trek fandom and 9-11 truth, <laughs> just kind of a weird mishmash. I imagine you've had some interesting feedback over the years. Yeah, we've had some fans that uh, they love us, but then they saw, you know, something they didn't like, and then they're like, oh, we're, we're going to unsubscribe, like like it's, a, like it's a punishment. But we've never made a cent from YouTube. We've never partnered with the devil, so to speak. So it doesn't really matter. We do it for fun. We do it for us, and yeah, it's... Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's great, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the feedback we've had, um, we've got uh, Nickelback uh, contacted us and invited us backstage at one of their <laughs> concerts in Toronto, and, uh, and we were watching Happy in Paraguay in their dressing room, <laughs> and uh, it was it was surreal. And uh, yeah, I, I run into people sometimes, and uh, and you know they'll they'll just come up to me and quote one of the the lines and, uh, and go, oh you're that guy and the apple juice guy <laughs> i gotta admit i don't think i'll have made it until nickelback invites me backstage to watch corbett report with them that's uh that was really weird invite us if that happens yeah <laughs> well as people may or may not know you I mean you guys are musicians yourselves so you have multiple talents and you do employ th those on the channel as well tell us about some of the music that you've done for day job orchestra pete well n yeah all the, all the uh, music is is original um all the intro and outro music and stuff and um day job orchestra of course is the name of our band and uh chris robertson is the bass player and we started as a trio man and i think it was in the 90s um as like a progressive rock trio so um that's where the name came from and then we thought well let's just make a youtube channel and we called it that and um it's now more associated with the lip dubbing than than uh, the music but um a lot of people are aware that um we're musicians like um mike's been you know professional touring drummer for forever and i'm here in attitude productions north of toronto which is my music production studio and i've been doing that forever um so um yeah it just seems like we've we've always been involved with media and um um so yeah we we i guess we work it all in together i don't think we ever had a thought at the beginning that we were going to tackle anything other than you know music and humor for entertainment purposes or for our own enjoyment i didn't think we foresaw you know um trying to inject any kind of other social commentary but um because it's just sort of in our vocabulary and we can stop you know thinking about this stuff and we're always talking about this stuff and we're always saying hey did you see the latest corbett report and um and so because the lines are sort of like a rorschach test or an ink blot and you know you you kind of see what what you see and <laughs> maybe someone can psychoanalyze that one day but um, you know, the, the, the true stuff does wind up coming out. And so, um, uh, and yeah, and some people react to it well and some people don't, but, um, so yeah, we, we mix it all up. Um, uh, let the I apple think, juice fall where it may, I say. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, 
excellent way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's such a it's it's it comes across as just a completely organic sort of mishmash of all your interests and talents and and it it certainly seems that way anyway. Um, and I, I guess talking seriously about comedy is like dancing about architecture. I mean, it, it completely misses the point. But if we may talk seriously for a moment. Yeah, let's let's talk about that idea of using comedy as a way of inserting truthful and important information about very serious things. Uh, what's your overall take on how that can be done, should be done, is done? Should people think about it? Should people just do it? Is it a strategy? Uh, you know what? Yeah, it's a it's a good point. We just sort of started doing it without thinking about it, and then you know we get some positive and some negative feedback and. I guess in a way you're taking sides. Um, but in another way, comedy has a way of um, sort of getting through to all kinds of people. Um, and uh, if you draw a mustache on the face of authority, yeah, it's cathartic. And for people who agree with the criticism, it's funny. And for people who don't agree with the criticism, it's often funny. So if comedy can make us laugh at ourselves, maybe it can do things that a dry data dump can't do. Although some people have done successful hybrids like um, your video, 9-11, um, um, a, cons a, a conspiracy theory, which uh, managed to pack a lot of information I into, um, you know, there was comedy, there was a lot of information. Um, it's hard to do that. Um, but I think that was an example of um, uh, a good example of that. Um, so and with our style, because we, you know, sometimes can't get the lines that we want as far as coherence, we'll, we'll say something we want to say. And then we would really like to follow it up with something coherent. But, you know, sometimes the, it, it just we're too constrained by it doesn't look right. So uh, we wind up saying something stupid. And um, so I think, um, you know, in the style that we're doing with uh, lip dubbing, it's more just sort of drawing a mustache on the face of authority as opposed to delving into uh, a lot of uh, detail but um, I, I think there is a place for that and uh, and the narratives are also you know hysterical once you can distance yourself from the tragic effects um, of the narrative the narrative is pure comedy my friend used to say don't write it just write it down um, and it's just a matter of you know how do you how do you package this stuff because it's already insane um, so I think comedy will it, it'll always it'll always be there and 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 uh, truth and comedy I think you know more than I ever realized are are kind of you know joined at the hip. Um, I used to listen to George Carlin and Monty Python as a kid and appreciate on a purely silly level, um, and then I go back and look at that stuff and I realize there's a lot of truth in it. And um, so um, yeah, in a way I think maybe the best comedy is just telling the truth and as long as it's critical and it doesn't stray into advocacy uh it can still be funny once again that was mike thorne and pete swan of day job orchestra and if you are interested you can find out more information and links to all of their work and all of the things that they're involved with at dayjoborchestra.com where of course you can find links to the ThemTube channel, but also their Rumble channel. You can find their music. You can find links to various sites associated with Mike and Pete and Day Job Orchestra, including the Thought Crime 7 channel that Pete was referencing. Also, something called the Alternative News homepage, 
at alternativenewshomepage.com. Uh, a great compendium of links to alternative media sources and sites for researchers and tools and software and things that you can download. Lots of really interesting stuff on there. That is all available and accessible through dayjoborchestra.com, and that will be linked up in the show notes if you care to take a look at it, and I hope you do. Um, but there you go. There's another example of people out there using their creativity to find a very, very different way of putting this information in front of people. And the more ways, the better, is generally my spirit. So, all right. So this is an edition of Solutions Watch. So the question is, how do we go forward with this? What do we do with this information? How do we apply it? And there's a lot of different ways that this can be done. Far be it for me to tell anyone what to do or how to do it. But I think there are some general principles that probably are more successful, shall we say, in helping to spread truth through this comedic medium, which I think, again, is a vastly neglected and undervalued way of spreading information. Yes, serious analysis is important too, and this is serious information, and we should take it seriously, and there are serious threats. But having said that, if we do not take time to satirize the self-evident nonsense of the propaganda that we're being fed, and the absolute ridiculous comic book characters that presume to be ruling the world and oh my god we should be cowering in fear from the likes of Klaus Schwab I mean it's ridiculous it's nonsensical we need to laugh at them so having said that if we do want to satirize them effectively I think that probably one principle to keep in mind is that if you're going to create something comedic something funny some funny way of telling truth it should be first and foremost funny <laughs> it should actually be comedic entertaining interesting in some way um because otherwise it ends up being very ham-handed very uh, not very interesting or uh, like a message someone with an activist campaign message and oh yeah by the way here's kind of a half-hearted joke or two then we'll call it comedy no no, no make it comedy first make it funny and then uh, worry about the message that it's containing as well um and another important point of this, I think, is that the the propaganda that we're being fed is so ridiculous, is so insane, that it satirizes itself. And in fact, a, a really easy way, I think, of satirizing this stuff is to simply repeat the propaganda line, but repeat it earnestly. Like, really go for it. <laughs> Lean into it. Um, and that is essentially what the 9-11 conspiracy theory Siri, uh, the, that whole series of conspiracy theory videos that I've done on 9-11, JFK, OK, uh, OKC, etc. That's essentially the principle by which that was created, is that the, the, what they expect us to believe about 9-11 is so self-evidently stupid that if I just say it, and say it fast enough in an entertaining way, it satirizes itself. I don't really have to do much when it comes to that. And I think that's probably true of a number of propaganda um, th things that are swirling around in the in the media zeitgeist right now. So, for example, let's take a look at some examples of satire that I think is being done quite well. One was posted recently, uh, Peter Hotez Vaccine Expert, which compares uh, <laughs> Peter Hotez, who I'm sure you're familiar with. If not, look up Science Says from the Corporate Report podcast archives. Um, Peter Hotez Vaccine Expert, comparing him to a slimy TV ad pitch salesman um, in a quite effective way. He's basically an infomercial guy who's selling a completely ridiculous, stupid, 
not only stupid, but actually harmful product, but trying to make it sound good. And when you put it in that context, everyone can see what the Peter Hoteses of the world really are, can see who these people really are at base and what they are doing in a way that you wouldn't normally look at. And it's that kind of slightly skewed uh, comedic angle that makes it acceptable, even for a lot of mainstream people would, would be able to see, oh yeah, this is kind of a info infomercial sales pitch, isn't it? So um, that was, a, I think, a good example recently. Also on the Peter Hotez note, because he is such a clown and such an easily satirizable figure these days, uh, I will note the Babylon Bee had a great story up recently. Joe Rogan savagely bullies scientist by inviting him on podcasts to explain his position, which, <laughs> again, just goes to show that The Onion really, really, really has the that that title, that, that uh, legacy of The Onion really has shifted over to the Babylon Bee in recent years. And that's another example of that. That's the type of thing The Onion would have been writing if they hadn't turned into just, well, whatever they turned into, unable to talk tell truth to power anymore. Um, and another example that I saw recently, Kevin Barrett had up on his Substack a, a funny, a funny article: Trump Kennedy struck down by magic bullet. And uh, read it if you haven't yet. Uh, I I did link it up in the uh, newsletter this past weekend, so hopefully you have seen it. But if not, give it a read. It's the type of humor and satire that again presents itself when we are being fed such obvious nonsense and garbage. Anyway, those are examples of ways that people can play around and come up with comedic takes on things. And here's here's something if people are out in the crowd thinking, well, I wonder what I could do. Well, I, I'm looking at that Washington Post Let's Go Brandon explainer that we looked at earlier, and I'm thinking that is so ripe for satirizing. I would love to do a sat satirical version of that, exactly that type of, exactly that type of video and the way it's constructed and... Uh, the gears are turning. I will probably do one unless someone wants to take a crack at it, do it first, spread it to the four winds. And if I catch uh, sight of it and if it's funny, I will be happy to share that with the audience. But those are some of the types of things that people can be doing. I think it is important to be speaking truth to power in this way, particularly because it is the soft underbelly of the beast. The under, as, as Dean Coots and others have observed, it, the, the tyrants love it when you cry and wail and protest and fight back because it just shows your subservience. The one thing they cannot stand is your laughter. And uh, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. I think it's one of the tools in our tool belt as we go forward, laughing at tyrants. So I'm sure there are many, many examples of funny things that you have seen even recently or in the past that you would like to share with others. If you uh, do have such examples of that, I'm always interested to hear them. Please leave them in the comment section for this edition of Solutions Watch. But that's going to do it for this voluminous and slightly mirthless <laughs> edition of Solutions Watch. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Oh, before I go, I should say, you know, this episode has got me thinking of all of the th comedic videos in the Corbett Report catalog including not only the videos like the one that we opened up with today, but ones that are embedded within other reports that I've done that you might not have seen in the first place or you might not remember. There's enough of those that I think I'm going to start a regular flashback funny series. As you know, I, basically every weekend I'm posting up a flashback, a relevant flashback from the Corporate Report archives. I might start 
maybe once a month or so, just posting up a funny video from the flashback archives um, so that people can re-familiarize yourself with some of the work that I've done on this in the past and hopefully laugh again at the tyrants. But that being said, now we'll go to the real ending. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.